Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the great service we've had already, and thank you for a great day we've had already. And I just ask you, Lord, as we look into your word now, that you speak to our hearts, that you... Um, You'll help us to hear what we need to hear, God, and to understand you in a fresh and deeper way and respond to that understanding. In your name we pray, amen. If I get excited, can I grab a bell, Wayne, and start ringing, dinging? You know, about 18 years ago, I got scarred by the, uh, the bell guy at my church. I was playing with him one day, and he said, you're not intelligent enough to use them, and you don't have enough money to replace them, leave them alone. I don't even look at them now when they're being played after that. We're going to talk about the ultimate tonight. The word ultimate means the highest. It means, uh, it means the grand poobah, the, the maximum. You know, and if you're a, a, a sports fan, you may be familiar with the ultimate fighting championship, uh, the ultimate fighter, which is the maximum, the best fighters who they're looking for. With summer coming, maybe you're looking for the ultimate vacation or the ultimate time off. You, you understand, uh, we understand what the word ultimate means. Well, this evening in Hebrews 7, we're going to look at, in my opinion, a peculiar passage that honestly has some very significant application once you get out the 24-inch electric knife and cut down and find it in this, this stuff. I've, I guess this week, through the course of my life as a Christian, I've probably read this passage 50 or 60 times. I've never preached on it, and I'm not sure until this week I had really a, a very much of a clue of what much of it was saying. And I want us to look tonight in Hebrews 7 at Jesus being the ultimate. And, and here's the main thrust tonight. Jesus is our ultimate priest. Now, if you were here probably four or five weeks ago... We talked about Jesus being our priest, and, and that's one of the themes in Hebrew. And the word priest literally means one who performs certain rituals or rites. Normally we think of it as religious rites or rituals. They, uh, in different religions, and certainly in Christianity, uh, and certain groups call their pastor a priest. Catholics do, but also so do Episcopals and Lutherans and uh, other uh, Orthodox churches call their ministers, their pastors, priests. They perform certain rites. They can perform sacrifices of some kind. And one of the, the primary concepts of a priest is they act as a mediator between God and man. Their job is to connect God and man. Now, the Jewish people, they knew what a priest was. And remember, Hebrews was written to probably two classes of people. Christians coming out of Judaism, they were young Christians who had been Jews their whole life, and people he was trying to evangelize who were Jewish people. So it was a largely, this is a heavily Jewish book. It's interesting, the word priest comes from the Latin word pontifex, which means bridge builder. Now that's significant, and that's going to be significant tonight. And the Jewish people looked at Abraham, and they looked at Moses, and they looked at Aaron. Aaron is the first priest. It's kind of the grand poobahs of the faith. And then David would have been in there too, and Solomon, obviously. And what this passage is going to say to them is that 
Abraham's pretty top-notch. Aaron and Moses pretty top-notch. But Jesus is the ultimate. Now, this evening, there's not many of you struggling whether Jesus is over Aaron. Uh, but we struggle, or we need to understand where Jesus' place is in history. You know, Fred Luter is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't know if you know that or not. Fred Luter's the pastor in New Orleans. He is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. You, you know what? Uh, Jesus is over Fred, isn't he? And I can tell you, I don't know Fred personally, but he wouldn't have a problem in the world with me saying that tonight. We have a new Catholic pope, Pope Francis. Uh, pope Francis, by all, uh, everything I've heard, and I don't know anybody that knows him, but they, uh, you know, they say he's a great guy. But listen, Jesus Christ is over the pope. He's over the top Baptist. He's over the top Catholic. He's over everybody. And we're going to start in verse 20 of chapter 6. This is where it kind of starts, where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. Talking about going to the Holy of Holies. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Pronounce that name with me five times real fast. I'm teasing. Isn't that an odd name? Melchizedek. That is a, a, an interesting name. Now, Melchizedek is given high place in the Bible, but the strange thing is he's not found in the Bible hardly at all. In fact, the only place besides Hebrews he is found significantly is in just three verses in Genesis. Genesis 14, verse 18 through 20. is found in one little verse in Psalms. Listen to what it says. This is Genesis 14, 18 through 20 if you're taking notes. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who delivered your enemies into your hands. And this is the part you heard this morning. And then Abraham gave him, read that last part with me aloud. See, I slipped it in again tonight, didn't I? You didn't think you'd hear that again until next year. So let's see tonight, because God, the writer of Hebrews, and God is trying to compare to them, help them, because they they had an understanding a little bit of Melchizedek and how Jesus Christ ranked and who Jesus Christ is, okay? Here's the first thing that goes with him being our ultimate priest. He is a king priest. He is a king priest. Verse 1 and 2, Melchizedek was king of Salem. Now, it's interesting. Some Bible scholars believe Salem was ancient Jerusalem. Did you know that? I think that's interesting. And he was the priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. This is almost identical to what we just read in Genesis. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Now, folks, in the the ancient world, it was not uncommon for a, a king to also be the priest In the Old Testament, in God's economy, it was never heard of, never heard of. Here's why. Think how corrupt that would be. If a king has sovereign authority and then he appoints himself as the leading religious authority, you would have to be an awesome person to keep your integrity, correct? Uh, If power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, if you're the absolute political leader, civil leader, and spiritual leader, whoa, could that become a mess. In fact, there there was a couple of kings in the Old Testament who tried to be king and priest and to use the King James and God smote them. 
You remember that? The used redneck version, he smoked them. And I think of King Saul. King Saul decided he was king, but he was going to act as priest. And God said, hey, that's great. We're looking for you to act as king as priest. No, God said, guess what? You've just forfeited your role as king. So the Jewish people know the king priest didn't exist in their history except one person, Melchizedek. And he is called the king of righteousness. And this, throughout this whole passage, you've got to stay with me because this is a little complicated. Throughout this whole passage, the comparison is Melchizedek to Jesus and Jesus to Melchizedek. Folks, Jesus Christ is not only our sovereign king, but he is our high priest. Melchizedek meant king of righteousness. Righteousness means the right way, the way of God. And folks, Jesus Christ is the king of what's right. He's the king of righteousness. No, folks, in our world today, we're not dealing with people that we know struggling, whether Abraham's greater than Jesus, but we are in a religious war around our globe. Go back to Boston two weeks. And I want to tell you, our God is not the king of evil and strife and disaster. He is the God of righteousness, what is right, holy, and pure, and wonderful. Isn't that great? And then it says that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, and Salem means peace. Folks, Jesus Christ, from the very beginning when the shepherds came, said that he was coming to bring peace. What does the word peace mean? It doesn't just mean the absence of strife. Listen, you can, you can not have a war going on and things not be good. Peace meant not only the absence of strife, it meant inner tranquility, a state of well-being. It meant not only that there wasn't bad things going on, it meant good things were going on in here. And folks, the Bible says Jesus Christ is our ultimate priest. He's not only a priest who can bring us to God, but he is our king too. He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and he is the ultimate mediator between us and God. That's pretty good stuff, isn't it? And he goes on, and he tells us this, and the second big thought tonight is the priest, he's a priesthood not based on his genealogy. Now, again, stay with me on this because this really is significant. It is important. Made the Bible for a reason. His priesthood, Jesus being a high priest, is not based on who his mom and daddy were. In verse 3, it says, talking about Melchizedek, without father or mother. Now, this is, this is interesting. Or without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. What is this talking about? Again, it's comparing Melchizedek to Jesus and Jesus to Melchizedek. Now, folks, let me give you three theories on Melchizedek. One is that he was an angel, that it was an angel that appeared to Abraham without beginning or end. He was eternal, although I believe angels aren't eternal. I believe they had a beginning. God created them. Some people believe this was a theophany. This is Jesus Christ appearing in the Old Testament to Abraham, okay, I happen to believe that Melchizedek was a real person that appeared to Abraham and that he did have a beginning and end. We just have no record of that. And some of the Jewish interpreters, the way they interpreted Scripture was, if Scripture was silent, therefore that made a case for something. Now, this is not in the Bible anywhere and it's certainly not correct. Some of the Jewish interpreters said that talking about Cain, you know who Cain was? Cain killed Abel, the first... Couples, two kids, not Barack and Michelle, but the first couple, uh, Adam and Eve. 
Uh, and remember, always remember, if your family's dysfunctional, it's been dysfunctional since the Garden of Eden when the woman messed up, right, guys? I heard a female amen. I really did. It was a, whoever you were, thank you, sister. Cain killed Abel. There is no record in the Old Testament of Cain's death. So there were some commentators who said that Cain lives forever as endless folly. When was the last time you bumped into Cain? He was at Super 1 a few weeks ago. I think he was at Walmart. I really do. Near one of those checkout lines that didn't work. I think I saw him a few weeks ago. (laughs) Folks, I I personally believe that Melchizedek was a real person. We just don't have a record of his birth, a record of his death. But the point God's making here is bigger than that. And if you disagree, that's fine too. Look in verse 6. Verse 6, if I can find it in my little Bible. This man, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi. Levi is where all the priests came from. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. Okay? You follow that? Now let's go verses 11 through 16. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron of the Old Testament, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people. Why was there still needed for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? Verse 12, for when there is a change of priesthood, there must be a change of the law. He whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from the tribe has ever served at the altar of God. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to the tribe of Moses, that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. Verse 15, And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who's become a priest not on the basis of regulation, to his ancestry, but on basis of the power of an indestructible life. Folks, all Jewish priests traced their pedigree through to Aaron, to Levi. Okay, this is very, very important. You could not be a priest unless you could trace your bloodline back to Aaron, Moses' brother, the first priest. They were from the tribe of what? Levi. Okay, in fact, in Nehemiah chapter seven, you find out when they the Jewish people came back from exile, and here Dr. Murphy comes up and Clayton comes up, and they want to be priests. The only way you could be a priest is you had to produce proof that your bloodline went back to Aaron. Now you're saying I get on Ancestry.com and I can't get back my grandfather in 1930. Jewish people today who are active still can. I have a Jewish friend in New York who literally still can trace his bloodline to Aaron, if you can imagine that. He could be a priest. The priesthood, the Levitical Old Testament priesthood, was not based on your character. It was based solely on who your mama and your daddy were. Can you see some problems with that? Melchizedek's priesthood was based completely on who he was. He was before Levi was ever born. He was before Aaron was ever born. He was a priest because God said he was a king priest. That's what he's saying about Jesus. Jesus came through the tribe of Judah, the 12 tribes of the Israelites. There is no priest in the tribe of Judah. And he's saying, listen, God established him as your high priest, not based on blood, but based on character and based on who he is. 
That's pretty significant, isn't it? He's trying to prove to those people there's nobody greater than Jesus. And the next thing that he says to them is really powerful. Jesus is a priest greater than Abraham and Aaron. Now, folks, I want to tell you, if you know much about religion, Christianity traces its roots to Abraham. Judaism traces its roots to Abraham, and so does Islam. And if you went to certain places and you said Jesus is greater than Abraham, you had just, you've opened up a can at that point. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big deal. Look what's said in verses 4 through 10. Just think how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who became priests. They're the ones that collect a tenth from the people. That is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. And without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. In one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in another case, by men who is declared to be living. Verse 9, one might even say, Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in his body. You say, look, Abraham is the father of the Jews. Here's how much Melchizedek outranked him. Melchizedek bowed at his feet and, and praised him. Abraham gave a tenth of everything he had till Melchizedek, not the other way around. And folks, in the way it worked, well, these Jewish people understood it. It was always the Levites who were collecting the tithe. They weren't the one paying the tithe out to somebody else. He proceeds on in verse 16 through 22 to tie it to Jesus. The one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation of his bloodline, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Did you get that? And it was not without an oath others became priests. Without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee, the security of a better covenant. Listen, here's what he said. Aaron and all those priests became priests because who mom and daddy were. Melchizedek and Jesus became priests because God determined they were going to be priests. Because of who they were. You became a Jewish priest because of your pedigree. Jesus Christ was set in place because God said, swore by an oath. He is who he is. And he's going to be a priest forever. Now here's something very significant too. Have you ever noticed preachers and priests die? Have you ever noticed preachers and priests die? We're praying much that ours doesn't die anytime soon, but it's in my future. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, a contemporary of Jesus' day, said from the time Aaron assumed the priesthood with Moses until the temple fell in A.D. 70, about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, 
there were 83 high priests throughout that period. 83. Let me tell you, every one of them lived and every one of them died, didn't they? You know, we had a very unusual thing happen in the Catholic world recently. Pope Benedict retired while in office. Folks, folks, a pope is, is near infallible. Popes die in office. Baptist pastors get removed at some point. Popes die in office. But this pope, Pope Benedict, stepped aside. I looked this week just at the, at the history of the uh, Catholicism and their popes. And from uh, the last 2,000 years, there have been 266 different popes, 266. I was born in 1993, 63, I get those confused. <laughs> and in my lifetime, there have been, there have been six, six different popes. Gosh, go look downstairs by the library in the history of First Baptist. There's, we're, we're 128 years old. We've had 164 pastors. <laughs> and a lot of them are not no longer among the living either. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this. Here's what God's saying. As great as a pope, as great as a priest, as great as a pastor may be, folks, they're going to die someday. They're not eternal. Here's what it says about Jesus Christ. When you hook your cart to his wagon, friend, you're hooking your cart to somebody who is eternal, who has always been and who, is always, who always will be. In verse 22, it says this was given with a guarantee. That's a security deposit. Deposit. Folks, when God guarantees you something, you can take it to the bank that it's going to happen. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same. Read that with me. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Say amen to that. Isn't that great? Listen, when you wake up in the morning, he's the same. When he walked this earth, and he was the same 2,000 years ago as he is today. He's going to be the same 2,000 years from now. Isn't that great news? You see, our high priest is greater even than Abraham and Aaron because he's always been and he always will be. Amen and amen to that. And here's the fourth thing. He can save completely anyone who comes to him. See, here's where you start getting real practical. In verse 25, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Folks, the word completely in the New Testament, it's a Greek word, obviously. It's used in Luke to talk about a lady who had uh, probably arthritis in her back and she could not stand up completely. She she was bent over. And the word completely meant to be straight. It meant to be total. It meant to be perfect. And this passage saying, listen, if you will come to Jesus Christ, he doesn't save you a little bit. He doesn't save you partially. He can save you completely. Isn't that wonderful? I heard something. I think it was in an Andy Stanley book. He was talking about his mother's dad became a Christian. He was an older man in life. And he said, I, he said, son, I'm trying to live for Jesus. And I think I'm a good Christian. I just don't think I'm going to heaven someday. <laughs> Folks, Jesus can save you today for today, tomorrow, and forever. There's not a priest or a pastor that can save you at all. We can point you to God. We can pray for you. 
But there's not a priest or pastor who can save you at all. And this scripture says Jesus can save you completely. That means when you come to him, he can forgive you completely. He can restore you completely. He gives you the life you want today. And he's going to give you the life you need forever, completely. Now, how does he do this? It's on the basis of what he did for us in verse 26 through 28. Such a high priest meets our needs. Here's how he does. He's holy, he's blameless, he's pure, he's set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priest. He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all. And when he offered himself... For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the the son who has been made perfect forever. Folks, once a year, the high priest went into the holy of holies. And when he went in there, he went in there on the day of atonement to make atonement for the people's sins. He he, He was also making atonement for himself because he was a sinner too. Once a year, he did that. Now, listen, there were hundreds of sacrifices, though, that had to be made throughout the year. A a man named W.D. Davis, in his book, Paul and Rabbinical Judaism, he lists the official sacrifices that had to be made annually at the temple. This is not Reggie and Mary Celia offering up a sacrifice for their sins at home or something like this. This was the annual sacrifices that had to be made at the temple every year. Listen to this. This is incredible. Every year, 1,093 lambs, 113 bulls, 37 rams, and 32 goats. That's just the official sacrifices at the temple. Here's what this scripture says. And then came Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, sinless, perfect. And he went to the cross and he died for your sins and my sins. And when he did that, you know, it says the the temple, the the veil and the, the separating the holy of holies from the holy place was ripped in two. And then when he walked out of that grave three days later, that Every sacrifice that had to be made for sin was made that day completely, perfectly, totally, once and all, forever. Isn't that awesome? Friend, all you have to do to receive God's forgiveness is go to Him sincerely. Become a Christian. As a Christian, confess and repent. You don't have to go kill bulls and calves and goats and squirrels. Think what we'd do in Louisiana. It would be turkeys, goats, ducks, and squirrels, and rats, Nutra. First Baptist Rustin, they killed 48 Nutra last year on the altar. But it says Jesus did that. We have a beautiful song. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Help me, Wayne. Sin is left... He washed it white as snow. You see, any person, don't you buy into a theology that says Jesus doesn't love and can't save everybody. Because he can and he doesn't love everybody. And he can save everybody that will come to him. And here's the last thing he brings it together. Our high priest lives to bring us closer to God the Father 
and himself. He lives to bring us closer to the Father and himself. We'll read verse 25 again. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Folks, the word intercede is a word we often use in prayer. We talk about praying for others as interceding. It's us talking to God about other people, and that's certainly a concept. Interceding is you putting your hand in God's hand and you putting your hand in someone else and connecting them together. It's praying for other people. That's one certain concept of it. Now, it's interesting. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about the Holy Spirit praying for us. Listen to what this says. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Folks, do you know right now the Holy Spirit is praying for you and interceding for you? Is that not unbelievable that the Spirit of God is praying for us? And one of the things this passage tells us is that not only does the Spirit pray for us, but Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of the throne is constantly talking to the Father about you and me. Isn't that great? And it's not gossip, by the way, when he's talking to the Father about you. Intercede is bigger than just prayer. Folks, it's the idea of trying to bring people together. And again, when that curtain was ripped and the Holy of Holies was exposed, that was not an accident. That was God saying the the throne room to the Father is open, folks. And, And our high priest doesn't just go to the throne room to talk to God by himself. He is trying all the time to get you and me not only to him, salvation, but to get us to love God and to become more intimately involved in our relationship with God. Our high priest lives not only to pray for us, but to bring us closer and closer into a relationship with the Father and with himself. Is that not awesome? You know, it's great to have a wonderful pastor. I know some of you are saying, we hadn't in 10 years. We don't know what it's like. It's great to have a wonderful priest. But, man, it's, it's awesome to have the ultimate Jesus, isn't it? You know, tonight, if you're not a Christian, come and give your life to Christ. Goodness gracious, come give your life to Christ. Maybe you want to join the church tonight. We would love for you to do that. You, one way you can do it, when we stand, you come tonight and talk to one of our ministers. We'll help you do that. Christian, maybe where you're standing or at the altar, you need to re-embrace tonight. What a wonderful Jesus we have. Greater than anybody and anything, he's the ultimate. And he lives even today for us and to bring us to the Father. Let's stand and as Wayne leads us in a song, respond to what God's saying to your heart tonight.